Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here this evening for The Gist of Freedom. If you should care to join in on the conversation, you can come in at 949-270-5957. Our producer is author and historian Leslie Gist. That's G-I-S-T. My guest tonight is curator Randall Burkett of Emory University. Mr. Burkett is a curator of African-American collections, manuscripts, archives, and rare book library at Emory University. And he's here tonight to talk to us, amongst other things, about the papers of one William H. Scott. Good evening, Mr. Burkett. Mr. Burkett, are you on the air yet? I'm sorry? Are you on the air? Yes, I am on the air, and I'm listening. And Good. I'm ready to participate. Great. Um, tell us a little bit of how you got into the business of being a curator there at Emory University. Well, I've been a scholar in the field of African-American studies for uh, more than 40 years now, I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, Marcus Garvey. I was looking at the intersection of black religion and black radicalism in the 1920s and 30s and uh, wrote a dissertation that was published as a book called Garveyism as a Religious Movement. And uh, I have been doing research and writing in this field uh, since I completed my dissertation in uh, 1975. Uh, but I've also been a, a, a collector. I was a collector of books, rare books and manuscripts for myself for many years. And then uh, about a little over 15 years ago, Emory University opened a new position as curator of African-American collections, and I was the lucky fellow who got the job. So I get to, I have been able to, to help build a, a what has become a major research collection of, of rare books and manuscripts in African-American history and culture. I see. And uh, you also have the papers of one William H. Scott. And, we uh, do. I guess, 
guess William did something pretty uh, spectacular at age 12. He uh, did indeed. He was enslaved uh, uh, in Virginia, uh, outside of Richmond, along the Rappahannock uh, River, and during in the second year of the Civil War in 1862, he escaped from slavery and attached himself to a a a regiment of Union soldiers, uh, the Massachusetts 12th Regiment, and uh, was was befriended by this entire company that sort of took him under his wing. Uh, of course, he he wasn't able to read and write, but they taught him to read and write, and he served in the Union Army for uh, three years until the th- right through the end of the war, and witnessed some of the most horrific battles of the Civil War. And um, so, and and in fact, during a lull in the Battle of Fredericksburg, he apparently ran out on the battlefield and snatched a sword from a dead Confederate officer. And uh, when we acquired the papers of Reverend Scott, we even got this sword that he that he took from the battlefield uh, in 1862. So he fought in that war for three years. That's correct. He was actually he was so young he wasn't actually. I think I don't think he actually fought. He was an aide de camp to a man named Colonel Muzzy from Lexington, Massachusetts. So my guess is, as a 12-year-old, he was he was behind the lines and serving with this Union troop that saw action right through to Appomattox. So uh, I, my guess, and in fact the story is that uh, Colonel Muzzy was furious with this young boy for running out on the battlefield, uh, which was incredibly dangerous, uh, and uh, he he actually took the sword from young Scott, and then many years later, like thirty years later, uh, gave uh, presented the sword back to him after uh, Scott was a, had, at that point had become a Baptist minister in in Boston, Massachusetts, and Muzzy was still living in Lexington, Massachusetts, where he was from. So it's an amazing story about the sword, but more amazing is about Scott himself and uh, what he was able to do with the, the, the foundation of education that these uni- the, his fellow members of the 12th Massachusetts Regiment um, uh, were able to give him. So where did he uh, continue his education after the war? Uh, he's about he w- 15 years old now. That's so. correct. That's correct. And Colonel Muzzy... Uh, brought him up to Massachusetts and educated him in Lexington, and then later he went back to uh, and and uh, uh, Scott became a school teacher in Virginia uh, in the post uh, 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 emancipation uh, period until he was so radical he got run out uh, of Virginia and went back to Washington D.C where he went to Wayland Theological Seminary, which was a seminary for African Americans who were Baptists. So he graduated from Wayland Seminary uh, in Washington and then became a minister at uh, one of the prominent uh, Baptist churches in Washington, D.C. 
And then from Washington, he went to Boston, where he served uh, a Baptist church in in uh, in uh, Woburn, Massachusetts. Well, first in in Boston, and then in Woburn, where he finished his career. Do we uh, do we know the circumstances or any details as to why he was run out of Virginia as a teacher? What they, was he teaching? Well, I think he was just too radical for the white folk who were still, you know, very much in power. The details I don't know, but I know that he he always was a a very um, adamant uh, individual demanding African American rights. And when he went to Boston, he founded something called the Negro American Political League. He was very much involved in politics as well as religion. In fact, his main mentor was a a, a famous African-American from Boston named William Monroe Trotter. Uh, uh, Trotter was the first African-American to earn a Phi Beta Kappa uh, as a student at Harvard University. Uh, Trotter graduated, came under the influence of of, uh, Reverend Scott, and Scott helped Trotter, uh, uh, helped by financing a newspaper, a radical, a very liberal, I would say radical newspaper called the Boston Guardian that Trotter published for many years. Uh, and following, uh, and, and while, while Scott was in Boston, as I say, he founded this, this Negro American Political League, about which very little has ever been written. We have the constitution for this organization. We have pamphlets and flyers about this organization. And uh, Scott went on to become one of the original 29 members of the Niagara Movement, which was the organization that W.E.B. Du Bois uh, organized with uh, uh, Scott and Du Bois and 26, 27 other individuals founded the, in 1905 the Niagara Movement, and that is the predecessor organization that led to the creation of the NAACP in 1910. That's the year that Scott actually passed away, so he was never a part of the NAACP because he died the year that organization was founded. But he was very active in, in the Niagara Movement. And he founded this Negro American Political League, and you say that the only extent information that we have on that is the Constitution and a few pamphlets. Can you give our listeners an idea, or if you have it available there, a pamphlet or a Constitution that might outline some of the points that they were hoping to represent or some of their goals? Right, I don't. I don't have those at hand. I'm at home this evening, and all of the the original materials are in the Special Collections Library at Emory University. But I want to underscore that anyone who wants to do research on on Scott or the Negro American Political League would be welcome to come to use our collections. They can also write to us, and we can provide. photocopies of some of these materials. And also, anybody who's interested in Scott can go to our website, the Special Collections website at Emory, uh, and go to the finding aids. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a space to 
to type in for find search finding aids and you type in William H. Scott and you'll find a detailed listing of every box and folder that has uh, material related to Reverend Scott, uh, including many scrapbooks that he created and oh, there was a scrapbook on the Negro question and a, a scrapbook on the Spanish-American War. Scott was so interesting. He was he was very involved. One of the few African Americans involved in an organization in Boston, principally in Boston, but in New England, called the Anti-Imperialist League, and that organization was strongly opposed to U.S. involvement in Cuba and in the Philippines. And Scott saw, as did the members of the of uh, that organization, that this was an imperialist venture that was going to try to conquer lands of people of color in Cuba and in the Philippines, which is exactly what the United States did. And uh, Scott and the Anti-Imperialist League were strongly opposed to the United States becoming a part of this colonial world, the colonial empire that everyone was trying to establish in the late 19th and early 20th century. So throughout his career, you see Scott as a really fascinating individual who is so... um, He's, he's from from the time of the Negro American Political League, and go, to go back to your question, it was mm-hmm. demanding full rights of African Americans. He wanted full citizenship rights, the right to vote, the right to participate in uh, politics and religion and culture equally with every other American. And really, um, uh, he was a he was a fascinating a fascinating individual and. Virtually nothing has been written about William Scott, and I, I am so eager for some of your listeners to to uh, who are who are historians or history buffs to come down to Atlanta and look at the William Scott papers and uh, uh, write an article or a book or a biography of this man. He's just waiting to to have his story told. I'm certainly glad that you're here on the Guest of Freedom uh, to start that movement toward getting uh, the history out in reference to Mr. William H. Scott. Now, you mentioned a website. Could you give us that website address? Yes, the website is the, it's the initials of our, our, the, the library is, is called the Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. It's a mouthful. But the, the, the website is M-A-R-B-L dot library dot emory, that's E-M-O-R-Y dot E-D-U. So if you go to that site, marble dot library dot emory dot E-D-U, and then you'll see a bar that says search collections, and you can put in at, the, at that site, you can also see a guide to all of our African-American collections, of which we have, um, really, I would say, hundreds of wonderfully interesting collections of rare books and manuscripts on many aspects of African-American life and history. But we've specialized in black radicalism, blacks and the left, as one strong interest, and William Scott uh, fits into that category 
civil rights and post-civil rights movements. We also collect expatriate papers of expatriate African-American literary and cultural figures and, and um, African-Americans and art, art and art history. We have a range of collections in, in several areas where we're building research strength for for anyone you don't have to have a phd you don't have to have a a ba in the, our collections are open to anyone who wants to come and use our collections and you just have to fill out an application and come in and and use our collections if you want to hold in your hand um to take another example uh a book phyllis wheatley's poems on various subjects religious and moral the this extraordinary book by Phyllis Wheatley, published in 1773. Our copy is signed by Phyllis Wheatley, and any of your listeners can come to our library and hold in their hands a book that Phyllis Wheatley held in her hands before she signed it. Now, I think that's pretty pretty neat and <laughs> pretty yeah, cool. It's giving me chills, actually, to think that you... <laughs> well, I, I will say, when I have, when I have worked with a graduate seminar in in African-American literature, and I handed this book to a a graduate student sitting on the first row. I thought she was going to fall out. She was so excited and exhilarated to have a book. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, Monroe Trotter uh, was uh, Mr. Scott's mentor. He had some involvement with Mr. Du Bois in terms of being... right. Right. member of the 29 of the Niagara Movement. What other uh, black dignitaries um, was uh, Mr. Scott aligned with or might have been um, members of his Negro American Political League or who have joined him in the Anti-Imperialist League? Well, he, he, was, uh, he was associated with uh, many of the figures on the left. I mean, obviously, this would not have included Booker T. Washington, but it would have included... Uh, 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 left-leading uh, 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 Baptist minister. There was a there was a minister. I'm blocking for the minute on uh, uh, for the on the name of the. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking up to see if I can find the name of some of the of the, uh, the individuals. Now the, the correspondence doesn't. Uh, here's a, here's a letter to Susan Paul Vashon. She her father was a famous uh, one of the first. Baptist ministers living in Boston in in the, in the uh, early 19th century, and there's correspondence uh, to uh, Reverend Vashon's daughter. Uh, so there's and he was he was very much involved in there was a there was a terrible incident called the Brownsville uh, affair in 1906 when black soldiers were accused. Of uh, there was a riot actually in in Texas because of uh, the racism of the the U.S. military and and the the racist situation in which the the black soldiers found themselves and um, uh, many of uh, uh, many of these black soldiers were tried for treason and. Uh, the 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 Brownsville affair was a famous event in African American and American history in 1906. Trotter is always involved in in protesting, leading 
protest meetings at Faneuil Hall in Boston uh, with um, many of the the leading uh, liberal and left uh, political figures, African American and and white, but mostly working within the African American community. So, um, quite a, quite an interesting fellow, and uh, it's rather an interesting story. I, my, in my one of my previous employees, I worked at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I had a an undergraduate student who was writing his senior thesis on the Niagara Movement uh, under my direction and the direction of a colleague of mine in the history department. And this young man found Reverend Scott's grandson living in Boston, and and the, the grandson had all of these papers in the house in Woburn, Massachusetts, where Reverend Scott had lived and where the grandson moved into after after his grandfather died. And so he found all of these wonderfully interesting papers and wrote a wonderful essay about Reverend Scott. And about 10 years after that, I met uh, the grandson, uh, Henry Scott was his name, and uh, we became good friends. And it happened then on, just as he was, he became very ill, and on his deathbed, and this is very, is very moving to me. He called me to the his his wife called me to the hospital, and said, and I went to visit him in the hospital, and he said, I want you to take all of my grandfather's papers, and find someone who will write about my grandfather, because all my life I thought I would be able to write this biography, and I never was able to do it. So I was just given this amazing collection, pamphlets and books and a broadside. A broadside is a, a, like a flyer, a poster, an advertisement. It's a single sheet of paper that's printed on one side. All of these rare broadsides and, and the sword. I, I was given all of this, and I, in turn, when I came to, to Emory University, decided I should donate the collection to Emory so that somebody would come along and write that that book about about Reverend Scott and I'm still waiting for it to happen so I'm hoping that one of your listeners will be the person to come down and do it well I would encourage our listeners too especially the historians uh, to take up a challenge to get down to Emory look this work up you can also get to the website m-a-r-d-l dot library dot emory dot edu did I have that correct exactly that's exactly okay. right and, now, and as I mentioned go ahead mm-hmm. no no go ahead sir well I was just going to say that we we collect in a number of other areas beyond radicalism and the left uh, I will say we have the papers of uh, within the area of radicalism and the left we have the papers of Louise Thompson Patterson, whose whose husband William L. Patterson was twice vice presidential candidate on the Communist Party ticket, and 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 Louise Thompson Patterson was a brilliant woman. She was a very close friend of Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, and she was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. And she became politically very radical, and we have all of her papers and other collections around. 
African-Americans and radical political activity. But we also have uh, wonderful collections related to African-American art and art history. Uh, we have the papers of Benny Andrews and John Biggers and uh, Edwin Harleston and Delilah Jackson and Amos Kennedy, who's a, who's a, who's a contemporary. Give us some details on the people that you just mentioned, Mr. Biggers and... Right, John Biggers was a was one of the foremost artists of the 20th century. He lived in Houston, Texas. He taught at Texas Southern University, and um, he he was very much uh, interested in Africa. He spent years in Africa studying African art and art forms, and he incorporated much of what he learned into his own art. And uh, his widow is still living in uh, in Houston, and we were able to uh, acquire the papers from, from John Bigger's widow. And it's not only correspondence with people who were interested in buying his work, correspondence with African artists and the connections that he made in Africa, and his sketchbooks. So you see, you can see his a sketchbook is like a first draft of a novel. It's the artist's first rendering of an idea, so that you can see the development of of John Bigger's work through the these scrapbooks, the these uh, the, the um, artist artist books are called artist books that he used. Uh, Benny Andrews is a wonderful artist who who passed just a few years ago. Uh, Benny Andrews was born in Georgia. Uh, he died about three years ago, a, a, a famous artist. Um, and uh, we're th- we have his sketchbooks. He became, the I believe, the first African-American artist uh, uh, Prominent in in the art section of the uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, and we have all of his correspondence with with other artists, uh, and uh, he uh, he was so a, a, a major art figure. Edwin Harleston lived in Charleston, South Carolina. Harleston was a principally a portraitist. He did the portraits of African Americans, and his wife Elise was a, a very uh, distinguished photographer. And Harleston was both a businessman, he, he owned a funeral home, he was the founder of the NAACP in Charleston in about 1916. We have his papers with letters from Walter White and, and um, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, uh, John Shilliday and both white and black figures who were involved in the NAACP. So, uh, and Amos Kennedy is a wonderful contemporary artist who makes his own paper and designs and prints his own books. Uh, uh, Amos Kennedy is a fabulous book artist. And uh, he, he'll, for example, in our collection, we have a, a book that's really in the shape of a snake. And you open it up. It's a, an elongated book, uh, and you open it up, and there are there are proverbs from the Sea Islands in the book. Or he will do 
a, a, a riddle book that op- it is about two inches square, and you open it out and out and out and out, and it becomes a full page with with a, a, a gullah sayings. So, you know, we we really uh, we have some extraordinary collections. Uh, we have the papers of Samella Lewis, who's a leading art historian and artist. She founded the the International Review of African and African American Art, uh, which is based at Hampton University. Uh, we have the papers of James A. Porter, who is the head of the art history department at Howard University and a famous artist himself, but all of his correspondence. Uh, so, you know, we're um, and this, these are just collections in the area of art and art history, and we're collecting in expatriate African-American literary and cultural figures. Um, we have a, we just acquired an amazing collection of over 12,000 vintage photographs of African-Americans from the 1840s, that's the very beginning of photography, uh, to oh, yeah. the 1960s, and oh. that is a that's a stunning collection. I should it's, say it is 1840. From 1840, there was uh, photography began in the 1840s, and there was a man named J. P. Ball, an African American who was a photographer and we have photographs of his he was he had a photo studio in Cincinnati Ohio in the 1840s and 50s and um so this collection starts with JP Ball it's they're they're not all African American photographers but there are many African American photographers included in the collection and uh, we're in the process right now of digitizing those photographs. Uh, the collection is closed right now. We only received it about a year ago, and we've gotten a grant to digitize every single one of these 12,280 photographs. And it's family mm-hmm. life, it's uh, f- f- sororities and fraternal organizations, black college and universities are represented, people at work, doctors, uh, uh, lawyers, nightclubs, Jazz groups. It's it's just a, a wonderful collection. <laughs> well, tell me, do you need any help? Yes, we definitely do. You you need to come down here, and uh, well, you need to run your show from Emory and talk about our collections. <laughs> can, uh, people volunteer. Can they do any of that online to help you guys get that digitized? Well, or can you no, a little sneak we, preview? Maybe well, we can get a sneak. Uh, let's see. I. I think if you go to the web to that website and look under Robert Langmuir Photo Archive, there may be a few photographs there that will give you a taste of this collection. But that's the title of the collection: Robert Langmuir African American Photograph Collection. And L A yeah L A N G. M-U-I-R, L-A-N-G-M-U-I-R, Robert Langmuir. And this is a man in Philadelphia who's a rare book dealer who fell in love with African-American photographs. And he collected this extraordinary array of photographs, and we were really uh, thrilled when uh, uh, he offered it to us and we were able to to acquire it. It's really... uh, 
many, I, I think, many books on many different aspects of African-American life, religion, wonderful photographs of Father Divine and Daddy Grace and and um, um, Elder Solomon Lightfoot Michaud in Washington, D.C., the happy M.I. prophet, um, but also more mainstream bishops of the AME Church or head of the National Baptist Convention. I mean, he's got... Uh, church uh, church groups and fraternal organizations, m- the Masons and the Elks and the Oddfellows, and, and then nightclubs, jazz clubs, discos, um, entertainers of all kinds. It's just it's just a very cool collection. Well, it sounds like it. I really uh, would encourage our listeners uh, to get to that website in order to see a little bit of a tease. Uh, right. of those particular pictures in that collection. It's the Robert Langmuir. L-A-N- Robert Langmuir African American Photograph Collection. It will be open in the fall. And what you should do is call back. We should have my colleague Pelham McDaniels, who is the faculty curator of African American Collections, has been working intensively with this collection. And when it opens up, uh, he should talk with your listeners about how they can access that collection and make use of it. Uh, there are going to be people who are going to find their own family photographs in this collection. Um, so it's 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 a um, or, or they'll say I used to go to the Cotton Club or the Smalls uh, Paradise uh, Club in New York City or I used to you know that that sort of. That sort of thing. People will really enjoy it. Birdland, even. Exactly, exactly. All those clubs, the Onyx Club and all those clubs on West 52nd Street there in New York City. Yeah, Yeah, I'm anxious to see that myself. Well, Well, you'll just have to make a trip to Atlanta and take a look yourself. We'd love to have you. Yeah, sure looking that way. Uh, So tell us about other collections in in addition to this photography collection what other collections of note well we we have um we have so many wonderful collections we have an extraordinary archive is being donated to us by camille billups and james hatch uh camille billups is a wonderful artist sculptor printmaker and filmmaker and her husband is a leading authority on African-American theater. And for the past half century, Camille Billups and James Hatch have been gathering materials on African-American life and culture. They, they, lived in, they live in New York, uh, and uh, they, have, they have created something called the Hatch Billups Archive, which still is extant and still active in in New York City. Um, But they were looking for a permanent home for this amazing collection. It includes, for example, scripts of over 1,200 African-American authored plays. And it includes 15,000 slides documenting African-American art exhibition openings in New York and and New England that Camille Billups took. It uh, it, it includes um, 6,000 books and pamphlets and um, 
they have been documenting African American life and culture for the last 50 years. And about 12 years ago, they decided that the permanent home for their collection should would be Emory University. So they are giving this amazing collection to us, and a, a, a substantial portion has already come and is available for research. All of those scripts of African-American authored plays. They've also, uh, uh, in the, the Hatchbillop archive in New York, they have interviewed over 1,200 African-American artists, writers, poets, literary and cultural figures. And they've recorded those originally on reel-to-reel tapes, but then later on cassette tapes and then later on CD and now video. And all of these interviews are, are going to be available for researchers at Emory University. And so that is really a hallmark collection. The uh, the, the Hatch Billup collection is the title of the of what they have in New York City. So we've called the the Emory collection the Billups Hatch collection. So there's a little bit of differentiation. So about half of the collection is still in New York, and about half is in Atlanta. But it it really uh, covers the breadth of of art and music and poetry and literature, so really quite a, quite a, an astonishing collection. But we also have Bricktop's papers. Have you ever? Do you know Bricktop? She was no, a, I haven't. Well, uh, Bricktop, Bricktop had a Nike. Go ahead. Yeah, excuse me for a minute. I wanted our producer Leslie Gist to know that I see her, but uh, <laughs> my uh, computer is frozen. It, I can't see the message. Okay. And, uh, remind our listeners if they want to join in and have questions or comments, they can do that at 949-270-5957. And again, Leslie, I have uh, folks working on it. Let's see if I can pull you in. Oh, it's okay. You're doing a great job. I know that um, Dr. Burkett would like to... Um, uh, in the show at the 8.30 mark. If he's having a good time, we won't interrupt him. But I just wanted to make sure you, uh, you got some advice as far as uh, museums and, you know, the, those usual questions we ask, I guess, about. Well, I would like to I would like to say and thank you so much Leslie for the invitation to participate and it's been a great mm-hmm. pleasure and as you can tell I'm very shy and very reluctant to speak <laughs> out but I'm trying to overcome that but I, mm-hmm. I will say that uh, Embry has extraordinary collections that we are open to research but there are other wonderful repositories all over the country the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture you know very well Columbia mm-hmm. University, at, uh, Atlanta University, um, there are uh, Howard University, Moreland Spingarn Research uh, Library. There is the thing is there is so much rich material still in private hands that people need to preserve and need to find a place for. And I always say to people. If you don't, and, and this is a line from Camille Billups, if you don't want the great state of New York to decide what happens to your materials, your family history, 
make a decision and either give it or put it in your will that it's going to go to the Schomburg or it's going to go to Columbia or it's going to go to to another institution that's going to preserve it and process it and make it available to researchers. There is so much material as such an important part of American history that needs to be preserved. So I, I urge all of your your listeners to to think about this. And as I say, you don't want to leave this as a burden to your children to decide. You should make a decision yourself and, um, and make sure that these materials are going to be safe. You know, I'm so yes. glad that you mentioned that. Um, I have a number of friends who are genealogists, and we're always encouraging them two things. Write your story, document it, and get it stored somewhere. Make sure exactly. So I am so glad you mentioned that. Uh, Leslie, you had something you wanted to add? No, I didn't. Thank you, gentlemen. I enjoy listening to you guys. Well, I will say I, I will I will sign off, but I will say thank you to both of you for the invitation to participate, and I hope it'll turn out in uh, in the fall when we get the Langmuir collection that you can call my colleague Pella McDaniel's. I know he would love to talk about uh, about that photo archive as well. Great. All right, and thank you very much. Certainly. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Leslie. Um, Still haven't got that difficulty worked out yet, but uh, my name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. I'm stationed here in Kansas City. You've been listening to The Gist of Freedom, brought to you by our producer, Leslie Gist, that's G-I-S-T, author and historian. She's on Facebook or you can Google Freedom of Gist, or you can Google Black History University and get a hold of Ms. Gist. Appreciate you. Good night, everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.